Shalom and welcome back to Amla Vadad Yishkon. This is episode number 12. Last week we began to discuss the concept of Mamlechet Kohanim Begoy Kadosh. And we presented the idea that the Torah is to be looked at not as a book of religion, but as the constitution for a nation and as the blueprint for a society. A society that is to be based on the service of God, not only in its religious observance, but also in every other aspect of its existence, and that the Torah is the roadmap, the blueprint for building such a, uh, the plans for building such a society. We began to understand what that meant at the end of the podcast last week by discussing the Torah's vision for how the capital city that would later be built in Eretz Yisrael, eventually in Yerushalayim, although the Torah didn't tell us where it would be, the, the, way that city was supposed to look and what was supposed to be going on there. Today, I'd like to look at a number of other aspects of the model society that the Torah wanted us to build. If we started with the capital city, which is in many ways a symbol, let's talk first about other symbols. All have symbols. All nations have holidays, days that, uh, that break up the monotony of the ordinary work week and where people take time off celebrate with their families at the same time that their entire country is celebrating and they're always celebrating something. Those holidays always mark some sort of important event or some aspect of the national heritage or something that's important to the people of that nation. And of course the Torah set up a series of national holidays for Am Yisrael as well. The Shalosh Regalim, the three uh, uh, pilgrimage festivals, are on the one hand timed at key points of the agricultural cycle. We have in the spring Pesach or Chag HaMatzot, which is referred to as Chag HaAviv. We have in the beginning of the summer Shavuot, which is the Chag HaKatsir. And we have in the beginning of the fall or at the very end of the summer, we have Sukkot, which is the Chag HaAsif. So in the rhythm of an agricultural society, each of these times is going to be a very, very important time of year. And it's a time... Um, to celebrate and a time to offer thanks to God. And connected within each of these times is also uh, an idea of remembering fundamental aspects of our national existence. Pesach, of course, besides being Chag Haviv, is also, of course, Zman Cherutenu, marks the time in which we came out of Mitzrayim. And Shavuot, of course, besides being the beginning of the harvest, is Zman Matan Toratenu. And of course, Sukkot, besides marking the end of the harvest and Chag HaAsif, Sukkot is also a time in which we remember the time, the way in which Hashem took care of us in the desert, in the Midbar. So what the Torah did for us is it took times of the year when a farming society is going to naturally want to take some time off to reflect and to, uh, and to celebrate and marks those events also with key aspects of our national heritage, in order that, as we speak about most, um, most explicitly at the Pesach Seder, as, so in order that each generation can pass down these fundamental principles uh, to future generations. Um, the Torah also set up for us Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah uh, which the Torah referred to as Yom Teruah, but it comes out on the first day of the year. And also, of course, Yom HaKippurim, just a few days after that. And I don't think one needs to go into too much detail about this, merely to contrast the way in which the Torah uh, envisioned 
and the messages that the Torah Shabbat Peh in, in, included or explained about the uh, observance of Rosh Hashanah, the observance of the New Year, to compare that to the way modern Western society, for example, celebrates a New Year. And I think we'll see something that's, uh, of course, dramatically, dramatically different. So this is a little bit about the symbolic aspects of, of national life. Now let's talk more about the practical aspects. Every society is going to need a political system and a government. In modern Western society, uh, it's treated as virtually axiomatic that democracy is the preferred form of government and perhaps the only legitimate form of government. Um, and that's because in modern times especially we've seen the, the, the terrible ills that can come from various forms of monarchy, dictatorship, totalitarian regimes, communist regimes, etc. But at the same time, uh, it pays to recognize that democracy is not perfect. And, uh, in fact, there are many, many problems with democratic societies. Democracies are, are often ridiculed by those in the non-democratic world as being weak, indecisive, inefficient, uh, as having a, a very, very weak rule of law, a place where crime can easily get out of hand. And um, democracy, it pays to understand, may be the best we have, but it's certainly far from perfect. I think it was Winston Churchill who once said that democracy is the worst of all possible or of all known form of all possible forms of government, except for all those other ones that have been tried from time to time. In typical Churchillian wit, uh, I think he uh, captured that that system very well. The Torah addresses the question of what the best form of government is, and in fact, um, it seems that the Torah's system of government is ultimately not democratic. There's a significant discussion among later authorities about how exactly to understand what the Torah wants in forms of a form of government. The Torah describes a monarchy. Some Rishonim uh, understand that as being, like the Rambam, for example, understand that as being a mitzvah, uh, a commandment, uh, indicating that the Torah wants there to be a monarchy. Other Rishonim view it somewhat differently and consider it only something optional or maybe even something negative. And we don't have time to go into that into that entire discussion uh, right now. But the one form of government that the Torah discussed is, in fact, a monarchy. And the Torah described, however, a monarchy that looks very different than any other monarchy that I think human history has ever known. Uh, it tells us in Dvarim, Perek Yud Zayin, it says, Ki tavo el ha'aretz, I'm reading from Dvarim Yudzayin Perak Yudalit. When you come into the land that Hashem Elokecha, that Hashem your God will give you, and you inherit it and settle there, Ve'amarta asima alai melech kechol ha'goyim asher svivotai. And this is, that pasuk is the source of the debate. The Rambam reads that as you shall say. It's a, it's a mitzvah, it's a commandment to uh, to ask for a king, kechol agoyim asher svivotai. Other Rishonim, uh, influenced, of course, by the passage in the book of Shmuel, where Shmuel Hanavi seems to have been very distressed when the people um, did exactly what, according to the Rambam's reading of the Pasuk, is what the Torah commanded them to. Other Rishonim suggest that this is not a command, perhaps it's only uh, permission, perhaps it's something optional, uh, perhaps it's something that uh, the Torah doesn't even really want us to do. So 
The question remains exactly what the Torah's ideal form of government is, but in any case, the Torah does not seem to be describing a democracy. And the one form of the government that the Torah does describe, whether it's the ideal form or simply something that the Torah will allow, is a monarchy. And so the Torah continues, Som tasim Again, either you may or you must appoint a king over you. Asher yivchara Hashem First of all, the Torah insists that the king come from among Am Yisrael itself. It's not, it's not allowed to bring someone in from another place to import some sort of a foreigner, uh, who maybe will be viewed as strong and, and to submit to his authority because of whatever power he has or whatever influence he has. The king has to be one of us. And then the Torah then goes, however, and issues all sorts of restrictions, restrictions that according to the halakha apply only to the king and not to any other person, and restrictions that I think are completely unknown, not only not only in uh, in monarchies, but really among any government officials, I think, anywhere in the world, um, and, and at any time in history. Rak lo yarbelo susim. He's not allowed to have as too many horses. Horses in ancient times were military equipment. That means it's the equivalent of saying he's not allowed to have too many jeeps or, or tanks or fighter jets. He cannot have an overly large army simply in order to show his might. And then the Torah continues, Velo nashim. He's not allowed to have more than, more than a certain number of wives. Velo yasur In order that they not turn his heart away from his mission, from his task. The chesef is a havlo yard and he's not allowed to have excessive amounts of wealth either. The king has to live modestly. And on top of that, the king has a special mitzvah to write a safer Torah for himself and to, and to keep it with him at all times. It has to always be with him. The Karavo Ko Yemei Chayav. He has to always be reading the Torah. Leman Yilmad Liyirat Hashem Elokav. Lishmor et Kol Devrei Torah Azot veAtachukim Ha'Ela LaAsotam. Levilti Rum Levavome Yachav. Ulevilti Sur Min Mitzvah Yaminu Smol. Leman Yamrich Yamim Al Mamlachto. Who Uvanav Bekerev Yisrael. And that is an incredible concept. A king who's not allowed to have excessive symbols of power, he's not allowed to have excessive mo- amounts of money, and who has to read, write his own Sefer Torah, write a copy of the, not just the book of religion, but the national constitution, and read it every single day in order that he realize that his job is to serve God and to serve the people. Listen to that expression, levilti rum echab. A king who's not arrogant, who's not allowed to become arrogant, a king who doesn't think he's better than anyone else, a king who recognizes that it's not that the rest of the nation is there to serve him, but rather that his responsibility is to serve them by leading them. And that is what the Torah insists is what is going to enable the king to, um, uh, to, um, to lead the people successfully and to enable his kingship to continue. Leman yarich yamim amamlachto hu uvanav of Yisrael. The king is also doesn't have unlimited powers. The Torah also sets up a system of judges with a certain amount of independence. Eventually, this institution that the Torah set up, the High Court, became known as the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin has the um, the function of a legislative branch of government, whereas the king is the executive branch of government. 
Uh, the king also has some legislative powers, but the the uh, the Sanhedrin and the courts below it act as an independent judiciary. Even the king can be put on trial and uh, and held accountable for his actions. And on top of that, the um, uh, the um, the uh, Sanhedrin also serves as a legislator, as a legislature, with the ability to enact gzerot and takanot, to enact what we call mitzvot durabanan, to create additional laws on top of that which the Torah set up. So we have a, a government with a balance of power, and we, I think, mentioned last week, if I remember correctly, that the Sanhedrin sits in the Beit HaMikdash. There's a very clear concept that the justice that's represented by the courts comes from the service of God. The king's palace is also to be built in that very same spot. All branches of government, therefore, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branches are all functioning together with a balance of power, but in a harmonious, cooperative regime, literally and figuratively under the shadow of the Beit HaMikdash. Now let's talk about other aspects of national life. Let's talk about the economy. In modern times, we're very, very consumed in political debates. Um, perhaps a little bit less here so in Israel, where security issues, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, dominate uh, the debate. But certainly in other countries, and also here in Israel, economics is a major, major, major part of the, uh, of the public discourse. And the great, the great debate of the last hundred years or so has been between two competing economic systems, capitalism and socialism or communism. Uh, and here as well, I think we can say that the history of the last hundred years has shown that um, that neither of those systems is perfect. On the one hand, I think by now it's clear that history has proven that communism is a failed idea. Communism simply doesn't succeed. Communism was based on the idea, if you go back to the writings of Karl Marx, it was based on the idea that wealth should be distributed from each according to his ability to each according to his need. In theory, that's a very noble concept, but in practice, the system collapsed because it simply didn't work. First of all, it breeds uh, corruption, putting all the, um, in theory, everything belongs to the people in a communist regime. In practice, there's a government that's entrusted with um, with distributing all the wealth, and therefore all of the country's resources are in the control of a few people who are not democratically elected, and therefore um, there's a tremendous, uh, tremendous incentive for corruption um, which every single communist society suffered from. And in addition to that, the very concept also showed that when there's no free enterprise, when people don't see a direct result in terms of their own personal income uh, from, their, uh, from their efforts, then there isn't really any incentive to work very hard. There isn't any incentive to be innovative. There isn't any incentive um, uh, to come up with new ideas, to be creative. And therefore, communism failed, and capitalism, uh, even even some of the communist countries, perhaps in, in recent years, there's been a little bit of a backlash against this, but fundamentally, uh, capitalism seems to have conquered the world. But that doesn't mean that, communi- that, that capitalism is, is perfect or even correct, whereas Marx may have been shown by history to have had the wrong answer, that doesn't mean he asked the wrong questions. And the problems that Marx pointed to when he spoke about the, the inequity of the um, of an uneven distribution of wealth and the constant tensions that that creates and the class struggle and the, and the capacity for violence and for wars and for revolutions because of the inequity of the, of the balance um, or the gap between the rich and the poor, he wasn't wrong. 
And uh, the more capitalist the country is today, the more one can point to some very serious problems that that country has in terms of um, what some might even view as the abuse of, certainly the neglect of, the poor and the weak. The Torah created an economic system that, again, is unparalleled in human history, an economic system that I'm not sure was ever fully implemented, but the Torah is presenting it as a blueprint. And I think that the place to see the Torah's economic system is in the mitzvot of Shemitah and of Yovel, uh, which are discussed in a number of places in the Torah, but uh, most prominently in the beginning of Parshat Bahar, Vayikra, Perek, Chafhei. The Torah's system is fundamentally capitalist in nature, in the sense that everyone owns their own property, and there are wealthy people and there are poor people. The wealthy people are obligated to take care of the poor. There is a concept of social welfare. We have the matnot aniyim that the Torah legislates. Every farmer, again, the Torah is speaking primarily to an agricultural society. Every farmer is obligated to leave a certain portion of his field as pe'ah for poor people and other gifts, leket, things that fall on their own, shikha, things that are for left behind in the fields. Um, in vineyards, there's peret and there's olilot. And um, in addition to that, there's also Maaser Ani every three years, and there's also other forms of Matnot Aniim. There's a general, there's a general mitzvah of tzedakah. If a person comes and needs money, one is obligated, if one is able to, to lend the person without interest, and if necessary, to provide gifts as well. So the Torah does, in fact, require that the wealthy people. Um, be concerned with and share their wealth with the poor people. But the Torah does not, by doing so, seek to erase the gap between the wealthy and the poor. There are the wealthy and there are the poor. The wealthy must take care of the poor to some extent, but the poor remain poor and the wealthy remain wealthy. It is a fundamentally capitalist system. However, once in every seven years, that changes. Once every seven years, there's a Shnat Shemitah, a year in which economic activity is brought to a virtual standstill. I'll read here from, from Vayikra Perak Chafei, for six years, you can plant uh, in your fields and prune your vineyards and gather the crops. There's a year in which all agricultural activity comes to a halt. A, which means basically all economic activity comes to a halt. It's a Shabbat Ha'aretz. Everybody takes time off. And in the parallel pasuk in Sefer Shemot, it says, V'hashvi'it tishmetena unitashta v'achlu evyonei amecha. The purpose of the Shnat Shemitah, according to Shemot, is that one must abandon the land, one must um, make everything have care, leave everything uh, available uh, for, to, to allow anyone to take it, and in that year, the uh, the poor people come in and they can take and they can take freely from what is ordinarily other people's property. So the Torah is a capitalist system, but there's a there's a socialist correction. Every seven years during the Shnat Shemitah, the Torah's society looks a lot more like a communist society than a capitalist one. It's not the basis of the economy, and at the end of the year, things go back to the way they were, more or less. The year ends also with Shemitat Ksafim. The year ends also with a situation where people who have built up large amounts of debt and owe a lot of money to other people are given a fresh start. And some of the wealth is redistributed in that way. And then we return to a capitalist cycle. So it's a capitalist system with socialist corrections. And every 50 years, which is 
once every generation and a half or so, on average once in most people's lifetime, or maybe twice if one experiences that as a young person, he'll get it again in old age, we have the concept of the Yovel. Perek Chafei Pasuk Chedim Vayikra says, V'safarta lecha sheva shabtot shanim, sheva shanim, sheva peamim, v'ayu lecha yemei sheva shabtot shanim, teisha v'arbaim shana. The Torah tells us to count seven cycles of Shemitot, 49 years, and then in the 50th year, V'havarta shofar b'chodesh ha-shvi'i b'asor l'chodesh, b'yom ha-kipurim, Ta'aviru Shofar Bechol Artsichem. There's a special mitzvah to blow the Shofar, not that year, not only on Rosh Hashanah, but also on Yom Kippur. And that blowing of the Shofar on Yom Kippur, the 50th year, creates a complete change in everything. A radical reordering of society that happens once every two generations or so. V'kidashtem, or once every generation and a half. V'kidashtem et shnata chamishim shana ukratem duror ba'aretz v'chol yoshvea. That's a all slaves, all those who've become enslaved, who've needed to sell themselves off and become permanently subjected to other peoples, even those who, who had their ear pierced in order to remain in slavery, go free. And everyone returns to their inheritance. And here we have the most radical concept of all. There's a concept of land ownership in the Torah. Every family inherits land that was originally divided among the Shvatim. And it's possible to sell land, but not in perpetuity. Every You can only sell the land, or perhaps it's almost more like leasing the land. You can only sell the land until the next Yovel. But in the time of Yovel, the land returns to its original owners. And it says here in the Torah, um that therefore land purchases have to take that into account. In Pasuk Yudawad it says, V'chitim kerumim kaila amito, O kanomi ara mitecha. V'chitim kerumim kaila amitecha, O kanomi ara mitecha, Al tonu ish etachiv, B'mispar shanim achara yovel tekneh me'eta mitecha, B'mispar shnei tvuot yimkarlach, L'fi rova shanim tarbe miknato, U'lfi me'ota shanim tamit miknato, K'mispar tvuot tumokherlach. The Torah insists, that we treat each other fairly, that we not that we not cheat each other or steal from each other. And therefore, when selling a piece of land, both the seller and the buyer need to take into account how much time remains until the next Yovel, because it's only being sold for that amount of time. If it's being sold for 40 years, because the Yovel is still 40 years away, then it's obviously going to be more valuable than a piece of land that's being sold only for the last six or seven years, let's say, before the Yovel, and therefore the price in such a case should be significantly less. Because you're not really selling the land, you're only selling the use of the land for a certain number of years. And this entire uh, Parsha, um, so first of all, let, let, let's just understand, before looking at what I was about to uh, address, let's just realize what a radical concept this is. Yovel is basically a reset button on the entire economy. Indeed, people can get wealthy and people can get poorer. And even with the breaks of the Shnat Shemitah, it's possible for the wealthy people to amass wealth, to buy up all of the land. And that's legitimate. The Torah accepts that as legitimate. And the Torah allows this to be done for a period of up to 50 years, which is a significant amount of time, and a successful businessman will consider it worthwhile to invest in a piece of land, even if he has to return it after 40 or 50 years. He'll know how to make a significant amount of money on his investment in doing so. There is incentive for economic activity, for investment, for entrepreneurship. But 
The Torah prevents a situation where you can develop a landed aristocracy that where a small portion of the population, a few families, own almost all the land and everyone else basically becomes enslaved to them as serfs or peasants or whatever terms were used throughout history. Um, we saw it in the Middle Ages in Europe and we see um, perhaps slightly more sophisticated versions of it in modern times as well. The Torah prevents such a situation. Every 50 years is this huge reset button pressed and everything gets zeroed out and begins again. And even a person who becomes absolutely destitute and needs to sell off his ancestral inheritance and, and, has, and has no even possible idea of how to get enough money to try to buy it back or to buy another piece of land, he knows that the day will come when he will see that land again, when it will return to him. And if he doesn't live to see that day, then at least his son will. Actually, the Torah doesn't describe it as he, as his land returning to him. The Torah says, Vishavtem ishalachuzato, the person returns to the land, not the land to the person. And now let me get to that pasuk I was about to recite a minute ago. The Torah ends this entire discussion with pasuk chav gimel, vehaaretz loti macher litzmitut, why can the land not be sold in perpetuity? Kili haaretz, says God. The land is mine. This entire reordering of the entire economic system is meant in order for people to to know that really the wealthy don't own anything and the poor don't own everything. We are all strangers. We are all God's guests in this land. The land really belongs to God. And a society that recognizes that will be a society where social justice is in the very fabric of what they do. We're almost out of time, so let me just, um, maybe in bullet point fashion, let me just point to a few other aspects of the way in which the Torah describes, uh, lays the foundation for an ideal society, and then perhaps we'll we'll close with one with one idea that we'll go into in a little bit more depth. The Torah discuss, we we've already talked about capital cities and and national symbols, and we've talked about the government and uh, and the economy. Um, of course, there's a full system of civil and criminal law. The Torah addresses all of Parshat Mishpatim, those laws that eventually um, in Torah Shabbat Peh were developed into. The Seder Nizikin in the Talmud, Masachet Bavakama, Bava Matsya, Bava Batra, Sanhedrin, uh, etc. So we have civil law, we have criminal law, we have a justice system, we have a police force. The Torah commands us, Shoftim Vishotrim, Titain Lecha Bechol Shearecha. There needs to be police, there needs to be, um, the enforcement of law. The Torah speaks about taxation as well. Uh, the king, is, of course, is allowed to tax the land, but there's also certain forms of taxation that don't really, that where the king himself has no control. Um, there's the concept of trumot and ma'asrot that go directly to Shevet Levi, to the Kohanim and to the Leviim, who are set aside as the spiritual leaders of the nation, as the, the clergy, the, the kihuna, the, the religious leadership, and also the educational leadership. Um, Another debate that modern societies argue is about how to best how to best have public funding for education. Um, and uh, in America today, I know there's a great debate about the voucher system, the concept of whether whether publicly funded education, whether parents school choice, whether parents should have the right to choose where their where their uh, where their children are educated, or whether or whether it should be determined by um, by some sort of government body, by some board of education, or something of that nature. Uh, here as well, the Torah sets up kind of a uh, 
a unique system which has perhaps the best of all the ideas that are out there. There is a permanent board of education. It's called Shevet Levi. Their job is to educate. Their job is to teach. Their job is to lead. And they're funded by public funding. They don't have their own land. Uh, instead, they have to live off of the contributions, which are not voluntary contributions, but the taxation, really, the ma'asr and the trumot and the matnot kuna that the people have to give. And um, it's described in the Torah as chelef avodatam, as being in, in return for what they do. Hashem anihu nachalatam, says God. The, they don't have an inheritance, so God himself is their inheritance. Uh, but, but, although there is... There are a permanent class of people who are charged with this task and they're funded from public money and their income is determined by taxation. However, the individual farmer, the individual person has the right to give his truma, has to separate truma to give to a kohen, but he can give it to whichever kohen he wants. And he can give his maser to whichever levy he wants. Because... Uh, and, and therefore, there is still a, an element of competition and there's an element of choice, of school choice. There's the ability to choose one's educators from among those who are tasked with this chance. And therefore, of course, there's a motivation on behalf of the Kohanim and the Levim to make themselves available and to make themselves... Uh, today, they talk here in Israel, there's a lot of debate about a user-friendly rabbinate. I think there's a lot, um, a lot there in the Torah's idea as far as that's con- concerned. I want to just, in the last minute... I want to point to one other aspect of society that the Torah addresses, and that is the military, the army. Of course, the Torah's ideal vision is a a world at peace and with no war. But the Torah also recognizes that until human society reaches its fulfillment, until we get to that vision that we once read in the book of Yeshayahu, and that perhaps we'll talk about in a later podcast, the vision of v'chitetu charvotam litim, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, etc., lo yisagoyo goy cherev, um, until we get to that point, um, there's going to be a need for an army. And the Torah, therefore, uh, sets up laws for the army. Uh, and the Torah discusses all sorts of rules, rules of war, uh, that you have to offer an enemy the chance to surrender peacefully before you attack, that you're not allowed to to kill people un, without without due cause, you're not even allowed to random to wantonly destroy property. That's a mitzvah about tashchit. You're not allowed to destroy, cut down fruit trees, or destroy things for no reason, even in the context of war. There has to be a real military necessity for doing it, and the wars have to be fought for a just cause, uh, either for, for for the benefit of the people as a whole, not so that the king or or the generals or the soldiers can can plunder and take spoils for their own enrichment. All these are spelled out in the book of Dvarim and developed further in Torah Shabal Peh. But I want to just uh, close this discussion by reading a few psukim um, at the beginning of Perichaf in Dvarim. The Torah speaks to a situation where we're going out to war. A Jewish army goes and they face an enemy and they realize that the enemy is is outnumbers them and outguns them. The enemy is more uh, more powerful than they. The Torah commands something incredible. Don't be afraid. That's a mitzvah. It's counted as a mitzvah. You're not allowed to be afraid. Why? And then the Torah goes on to describe the Kohen Mashuach Milchama, a Kohen who has to get up and has to give a speech. Certain people are given an exemption from certain types of wars. They're allowed to go home if they're in a very important time in their personal life. There's understanding of that as well. And then it ends with the Kohen um, giving 
um, giving a final, as it were, uh, pep talk to the people, in which he says, um, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. A Jewish soldier has to know that God himself is fighting with Am Yisrael because Am Yisrael really is fighting for the sake of God. This is what a Mamlechet Kohanim and a Goy Kadosh is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a society which is built around observance of the Torah in every aspect of its life, personally in each individual's life and publicly in all public institutions, the government, the army, the educational system, the the economic system, the political system, etc., etc., etc. All of it has to be based on these lofty principles of the Torah. That's the vision that Am Yisrael entered, uh, received at Har Sinai and the, and the nature of the covenant in, with, into which we entered uh, at Har Sinai. In next week's discussion, we'll see how history was meant to develop from this point forward. Shalom.